Hi, my name is Kirk Hamilton, your host of the Staying Healthy Today Show. This is a show where we bring you key experts in the fields of nutrition, prevention, integrative and lifestyle medicine, review the medical literature, and we review case studies. Today's show topic is neurologic illness triggered by mold toxicity, assessment, treatment, and hope. Our guest today is Dr. Neil Hershenbein. He's an MD, PhD. He attended medical school at the University of Illinois in Chicago, completed his residency and fellowship at the University of California, San Diego. He earned a PhD in clinical psychology from Boston University, and he's board certified in internal medicine, gastroenterology, anti-aging medicine, and has been prescribing bioidentical hormones since 1993, and he is a specialist in treating mold-related illness. So it's a great pleasure for me to have Dr. Hershenbein on because I heard him speak at the mold conference in Irvine uh, this fall, and he said a few pearls for me as a clinician trying to get a grasp of the neurologic component that relates to mold toxicity. So I want to pick your brain. So thanks, Dr. Hershenbein, for coming on the show today. My pleasure, Kirk. Thank you for having me. So how did you get started going down the journey of maybe mold might be related to chronic illness before we even get to neurologic illness? So it, it probably started when I read uh, Dr. Richie Shoemaker's uh, book back in around 2005 um, called Mold Warriors. Uh, it was uh, of great interest to me. I began looking at it, although I didn't actively start anything at that time. A little bit after that, there was a, a presentation where I heard uh, Dr. Shoemaker uh, and began trying to be more active with it and uh, have been working with Dr. Shoemaker since that time um, and find it very helpful for many, many people. So give us like a little overview of how mold exposure creates so many different con symptoms that relate to inflammation. How does that work in a simplistic way, if that's possible? Well, so part of it is that mold can cause a great deal of problems in some people, but not in other people. Um, so part of it has to do with a or with a genetic predisposition. Um, so let's say, for example, that you worked in a moldy building and you had 100 people working there. So 100 people are being exposed to mold. Does everyone get sick? And the answer is no. Some people get sick and some people don't. And in general, about 75% of people don't get sick and 25% do get sick. Um, and then the question is, well, why do the 75% not get sick and why do the 25% get sick? And the answer is your genes. So 75% of people have a genetic ability to make antibodies to mold toxins when they're exposed. Uh, so they get exposed, they make toxins, they make antibodies to the toxins, get rid of the toxins, and nothing much happens. 25% of the people have a genetic inability to make antibodies to those toxins, and they get sick. And, and the 75-25% thing is interesting because there are many people who are getting sick in a building, but others are not, and so they can't envision that it could be the building caused the problem because they assume everyone gets get sick. So Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense, which actually is going to jump to a question I wanted to get to later was, yeah. but I'll jump to it now. So you can test for the HLA uh, genotype that 
that has that makes you susceptible well that allows you to be more susceptible to the mold and my question my question is if someone came up well i am jumping the gun but if someone came up with all those biochemical tests that dr shoemaker says are abnormal and they weren't let's say had the hla genotype wouldn't you treat them anyway for mold illness yeah there are about five percent of people who don't have the genetic abnormalities who get sick anyway. Well, I guess my, my, my thought is this. That test happens to be quite expensive, and it doesn't get... It is expensive. It doesn't get paid for. So if I've... No, thought, it, it frequently does get paid for. Oh, it does. Okay, that's good, yeah. because I'm struggling with that, that particular test because it's expensive. and um, Well, all of them are expensive, but the other ones seem to get paid for no problem. So you say it does. So that's a, that's a good clinical pearl for me. So before I yeah. jump to the test... So how does that so so how does that create inflammation in the body this this the mold toxins what what happens Well so so the mold toxins are very inflammatory and they create the problems throughout the entire body that all relate to inflammation and we can tell that by looking at inflammatory markers like um, TGF beta 1 transforming growth factor beta 1 um especially in the people who have the this genetic susceptibility. So then let's get to that. What are the tests that you do, the basic tests you do? I mean, Shoemaker has a list of them. You know, they're like almost 10. I've gone over yeah. But which ones are the essential ones for you, or do you do them all on every patient? Well, so some of that it gets individualized kind of in relation to economics. Correct. Um <laughs> So, so the one that I start with uh, is, is a visual contrast sensitivity. Um, so this is kind of sounds a little screwy when you explain it to people because basically what you're doing is testing their vision. Now, you're not checking their vision for visual acuity. You're checking their visual for the ability to, to distinguish shades of gray. And what happens in the people who have these toxins in, in the body, they go everywhere in the body, and one of the places they go are to the cells on the back of the eye that, on the retina that have to do with gray discrimination. So this is something that you can do online on Dr. Shoemaker's website, Surviving Mold, uh, and it costs $15. So from an economic point of view, that's about as cheap as you can get. Um, and... If you fail the test, then there's a very good chance that you have a neurotoxin of one sort or another. It might not be mold, uh, could be other neurotoxins, but it suggests that you have a neurotoxic illness. So that's one of the ones I start with. This, the, the first laboratory test I do is a test called MSH, which stands for melanocyte stimulating hormone. Uh, and I frequently tell people that's the most important hormone that they've never heard of. Um, and in, in, in many, many patients, the MSH is low, and again, that suggests that they have a problem with neurotoxins. Um, there are several other tests. Uh, the, the two that are frequently abnormal, uh, although there's some logistics with some of these tests, currently is a C4A and a TGF beta-1 that I mentioned before. 
and frequently these are extremely high. Um, so normal might be in the range of under 3,000, and people will frequently have numbers of 6 to 10 to 20,000. One of the nice things about these tests is that an awful lot of people who come in to see me have seen multiple doctors. And when they have been seen, that they basically look okay. And when doctors do standard tests, they look okay. And the doctor kind of assumes that this is a psychiatric patient. And so I've had a few people cry when I go over these tests because they're abnormal, and it's the first time any doctor has found anything that was abnormal. Um, and they're done, you know, through Quest and Lab Course, so conventional testing, not some obscure test. Right. Um, and it can be very emotional for some people. Let me ask you a question, just to backtrack, just to hear. So the visual yep. contracts trash testing, do you have them do it online? Because truthfully, I don't want to sound like a bumbling fool, but uh, one of our docs had the, the unit, and I don't know, it was kind of confusing to me. So do you get? Do you really believe that's accurate online When if I send patients to going there? Did you get consistent? I don't know. Very often I use this as a screening test. Now, sometimes I have people coming in um, because they're concerned they have mold. But a lot of times people are just coming in because they don't feel well. And after hearing their symptoms, you get a feel for whether or not this may be a neurotoxic illness or not. And I frequently use that and the MSH as kind of a screening test to determine whether or not I should go further in that direction. Um, and extremely commonly, both tests are abnormal. And if one or another of them is abnormal, I pursue it a little bit further. And frequently, we come up with a solution. They have a neurotoxic illness, and a large amount of the time, that's mold disease. Okay. Now, so I, I got that. That's good. So I'll, I'll refer more people to the site, because I was a little confused on that particular test. It's, you know, I, just how it could go wrong, or people could not do the test right. So if you say it works clinically, then that's, that's really good. Now, all right, let's talk about the sinuses as a source of, of inflammation and treatment. I know about Marcans. I've done a lot of sinus cultures. Where do you put that in to the, the milieu, so to speak, in your steps? Well, so first of all, you know, it, it, again, I get, it depends a little bit upon what the patient is requesting and what they're coming in for. Mm -hmm. But let's say we're dealing with someone who is coming in just because they don't feel well, they're, they're tired, they're fatigued, they don't sleep well, they have aches and pains, their brain doesn't work as well. I typically will start off with the visual tests and the MSH and tell them that if those are normal, that suggests that they have a neurotoxic illness. And then if that comes back, and again, you have to have the whole story about exposure and things. The next test that I would typically do would be a neuroquant, mm -hmm. um, as well as some of the other laboratory tests, uh, assuming that they can, um, they're covered by insurance or they can afford it. And if that all comes back suggesting mold, I, I will start treatment with cholestyramine. 
and I only get to doing the nasal culture after people have been on cholestyramine for a while because if they if you find Marcon's and you start treating it um, and you haven't started treatment with the cholestyramine it's not nowhere the nasal antibiotics are nowhere near as effective so again I kind of jumped the gun here so you yep. one of Dr. Shoemaker's biggest principles is you have to, and we skipped this part, but you do this basic assessment, but what do you do with their exposure? So when when do you treat, do you wait till after their home has been tested, and how did you recommend that they do that, or their work environment, or whatever it is, and do you treat while they're getting remediated, or getting out of the exposure, or do you wait till they're out of the exposure? Well, a lot of that winds up having to be individualized. The, the the problem with ex, you know so so basically once you have a diagnosis of mold then the question is are they currently being exposed or, or is this a previous exposure and the way that I typically have people do that is and and this sounds a little screwy too is we test the dust in their house and we send it to a laboratory that analyzes the dust for mold DNA. And that can give us an idea of what kind of mold has been there and in, in what amounts. Um, and if that comes back abnormal, saying there is a problem, then typically you have to have someone come in and inspect the house to get a better idea of where in the house the problem is and what needs to be done to fix that. Um, there are some people who have enough finances that they can do that pretty quickly and easily and have enough finances that while that is done, they are living elsewhere. Uh, and in those people, um, you can start treatment. There are other people who, whose finances are not that good. So I actually have had a few people who were living in a tent or that were basically homeless or living in their car. Um, so with those people, if it's going to be a while before they are going to be in a mold-free place, then I would typically start treatment with the cholestyrene. Um, the work issue is obviously another source of exposure, and that gets even more difficult logistically um, than if it's in, in where they're living. So tell me the test that you were indicating, the test for DNA. You're talking about the ERMI test? I'm talking about either an ERMI test or a Hertzme test. Okay. Which one is your preference to start off with? Well... So, again, this is somewhat of a financial thing. Mm -hmm. So an ERMI test basically looks at about 40 different molds, most of which are problematic molds, but some of which are okay molds. And if you have a lot more of the problematic molds than the okay molds, that says you have a problem. And that winds up costing around $300, $350. The hurts me test is, done by the same company, uh, but they basically only look for five problematic molds. And again, if you have excess amounts of those five problematic molds, you got a problem. If you do an ERMI test, 
uh, you can calculate a hurts me score from it. Um, so you actually get both pieces of information. Um, so, you know, for a lot of people where finances are an issue because we're talking about remediation, which is expensive, testing that's expensive, and a prolonged treatment, uh, many people will just do the hurts me test. And here's a very um, a point that I've struggled with. When you tell someone they get the the Hermie test, the Hermie test, excuse me, mm-hmm. um, do you tell them to take the sample from one area in your house, or do they take it from multiple areas and put it on the the one cloth, so to speak? So, in other words, if they just tested their bedroom, but the molds in the kitchen or something, um, how do you how many samples do you put on that one test? I guess is what I'm trying to talk about. You know, usually what I tell them to look at is where where they sleep, where they spend most of their time when they're not in the bedroom, and if there is an area that they're concerned might be molding. So I typically will have them have two or three samples in, in one location. And you find that the people can do that accurately without, you know, a professional coming in to do that on average? On average, yes, they can. Okay, because that's been another sticky point for me. Is like I don't want someone to miss something when, you know, I don't want them to miss it because they didn't do the test right or get an appropriate sample. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I frequently find abnormal samples. So they're doing it enough right that it's telling <laughs> me there's a problem. That's great. Well, we're talking to Dr. Neil Hershenbein, MD, PhD, uh, a specialist in many different areas, gastroenterology, internal medicine, um, uh, anti-aging medicine, and also mold. And I wanted to, actually, the, the nature of this talk was, I got into this in a, in a kind of a, a backwards way, is, is that I was going to uh, Dr. Dale Bredesen's Alzheimer's um, trainings, and one of the types of Alzheimer's is called inhalant Alzheimer's, and it relates to sensitivities, and one of those is mold, and it might be up to 10 to 20% of Alzheimer's patients. So I kind of came in from a, a, a backdoor view. And when you did, when you talked about the neuroquant, the neuroquant is a way to assess for different volume, um, the volumes and, and sizes of structures in the brain. What is the pattern that you see that makes you so clearly know that it's a mold patient? Well, so probably what I should do would be briefly say what a neuroquant is. Please, please. So, so, so basically, you start off with doing a brain MRI without contrast. And a neuroquant is a software add-on that gives you three-dimensional volumes of different parts of the brain. It was uh, approved a few years ago by the FDA primarily for Alzheimer's. Um, and when you, when you do a neuroquant and you and you are doing an MRI, there are two different ways of doing an MRI. You can do basically a two-dimensional or a three-dimensional one, and you need to do a three-dimensional one because you, you take more pictures. And theoretically, this could always have been calculated by the radiologist reading this, but it probably would take a week. The NeuroQuant does it in 10 minutes. And what Dr. Shoemaker did was to have a variety of people do neuroquants, some of which were people he 
suspected as having a problem with mold or, or knew definitely they had a problem with mold, and others who he thought did not have a problem with, with mold. And he wound up looking to see what differentiated those groups. And what he found was that in, in people who have been exposed to mold and are having problems related to the mold, that there are certain parts of the brain that get bigger and certain parts of the brain that get smaller. So the parts of the brain that get bigger are what are called the forebrain parenchyma, and secondly, what's called the cortical gray. So on the surface, that sounds good, doesn't it? You've got a bigger brain, you've got more brain. But you've got a bigger brain because it's swollen and inflamed. The part of the brain that gets smaller is called the caudate, uh, which is kind of deep in the brain in, in the general area of the basal ganglia. And, and he has developed a scoring system. Um, and so these different areas get either a score of zero or one or two. And if you have a score over four, that is very suggestive that they have a problem with mold. And you do this as almost a frontline test when you're suspicious of mold from the history? You know, if I have people coming in with a concern about mold, it's, it's certainly one of the first tests I do. If I have people just coming in because they don't feel well and they don't have any idea, I usually try and make the diagnosis that they have a neurotoxic illness, and then I'll tell them that one of the neurotoxic illnesses is mold, and this is the best way of differentiating mold from other things. The problem with many of the other tests are that they are all kind of specific for neurotoxins, but not specific for mold. So people, you know, they, many people will think of the vision test as a mold test, especially since they're on, doing it on Dr. Shoemaker's website. Um, but it's not specific for mold, it's specific for neurotoxins. The, the neuroquant is the one test that winds up giving you specific information that people have a mold problem. And do you see after your treatments, do you ever, when do you repeat the MRI? And do you see changes to the caudate get bigger and the other structures get a little smaller? And do you see symptomatic improvement? Yeah, so I think, you know, among the, the mold community, there are at least 25 people who had a abnormal neuroquant. And after the full treatment, um, they were significantly better to all better. And when they repeated the neuroquant, they find that the areas that were swollen and inflamed are no longer swollen and inflamed. And more importantly, the parts of the brain that were smaller than normal have got back to normal size as well. Do you, staying with the, the neurologic focus, I know that if you do this treatment, other things improve from pain to energy to et cetera. But specifically, does it make sense to you that you could, if an Alzheimer's patient had a very serious mold illness and they had the classic neuroquant and you treat it accordingly and all the parameters improve, would it not be reasonable that they would have improvement in cognitive function? And have you seen people 
improve in cognitive function with your treatment? Well, so when we're talking about cognitive dysfunction, that can be extremely variable. So a large number of the people have what they call brain fog. That is, their memory isn't anywhere near as good. Um, they have problems with, oh, you know, I've had people who say they're, they're driving on in their neighborhood where they've lived for 30 years and are getting lost. So it can be pretty substantial. And a large number of those people improve. I, I was talking with a mother of a patient uh, earlier this week. He's 16, um, and a couple of years ago, uh, he had been doing great in school. He comes from um, professional parents. Uh, he, he's a bright kid. And, but last year, he was just doing terrible. And now this year, he's taking advanced placement courses and doing well again. So you would say that it would be reasonable that cognitive function can improve, <laughs> or well, I guess brain. Yeah. I get the brain fog part, but I mean cognitive function. Um, do you ever test for it? Like do a baseline, like a MOCA test, or anything like that, or you just do symptomatic? You know, I I, I normally just do it without doing any specific testing. I got it. The, pe- the the people usually can be aware, and if they're not aware, family members are certainly aware. When, when, you're, when you're dealing with something like Alzheimer's, which is, aside from Dr. Bredesen's work, considered a disease for which we don't really have a very good treatment, mm-hmm. I think it's always worthwhile uh, looking to see if they have a mold problem, whether they have a mold history or not, because you're, you're dealing with a disease for which there is no, no good treatment, and if they have mold, you're dealing with a disease for which we do have a good treatment. Well, then let me ask you this. Let's say um, you had an Alzheimer's patient come in. Would your your basic screening test be like um, the, well, the Neuroquant MSH, maybe the, the TGF-beta uh, uh, and a visual contrast test? I mean, what would be your basic screening test to see if it's worth going down that road in an Alzheimer's patient, you know, that's really coming in desperation? Yeah, so, uh, so again, depending on how severe, they, they may not be able to do the vision test very well. Um, so I frequently will have them do the neuroquant because at some point someone will probably be doing a brain MRI of them anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the neuroquant add-on is relatively inexpensive. It's about $100. Um, and it gives you an idea of whether or not there may be something that you can do something about or not. Okay. Um, how often do you use? Uh, how often do you treat the sinuses for Marcon's? And also, how often do you use um, VIP? Yeah. So, so a lot. Of, so, so Dr. Shoemaker has a protocol that has a number of steps, and you kind of have to follow the steps. So, the first step ideally is to get them into an environment that's mold-free. Uh, the second is that you start trying to remove uh, the toxins, which you do by using cholestyramine, which binds and removes the toxins from the body. Uh, then you wind up looking to see if they have Marcons, and if they have Marcons, that's typically treated with a 
nasal spray called bag spraying. And then depending on some of the other laboratory steps, there may be some other things you can do. But the, the last one is using VIP, which is vasoactive intestinal polypeptide, which comes in the form of a nasal spray um, that Dr. Shoemaker has shown that can reverse what your genes are doing and make you better. Do you have, um, how valuable is uh, hormone therapy, the, the classic sex hormones of estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, DHA, pregnenolone, in the, let's say, the neurologic mold patient? Well, so, so in, in some of the patients who are in the area where, in addition to the mold, they are having those problems, um, some of the time people can have hormonal problems just as a consequence of MSH. So MSH is a hypothalamic hormone, and it sends messages to the pituitary that sends messages to the thyroid, the adrenals, and the ovaries or testicles. So it's not uncommon for people to have an upstream problem to have a downstream problem. And some of the time you can do things to support those with bioidentical hormones. But really what you're trying to do is to get rid of what's causing the problem in the first place. It makes me wonder, after going to all the uh, hormone conferences I've done for the last 10 or 15 years, if <laughs> if many of the people are being treated, you know, have mold-related illness, and that would be the reason for some uh, hormone decline, except for just saying, you know, it's because of aging or whatever. Um, yeah, you, you know, I have done bioidentical hormone replacement for a long time, and after I started getting involved in this, when, when I would have a patient who was coming in just for their hormones, and I would ask them all the questions, a good amount of the time I said, this sounds like a, a neurotoxic patient. Mm -hmm. And yes, we'll go ahead and check their hormones and do things, but I will frequently throw in the, the VCS and the MSH as part of the initial evaluation to see if we indeed do have a neurotoxic problem, and very frequently we, I am. I find that we, we have that. So, and there's no problem treating concurrently both, in your, in no, your opinion? No. How about any favorite supplements with regards to the mold illness, or um, like do you do the basics, you know, look at the gut, and do they have more dysbiosis, so to speak, or fungal overgrowth, these patients, or... Can you get yeah, a, a, a low MSH will frequently cause problems with people's intestinal tract. So now I got to the point, because I'm a gastroenterologist, that when people come in with GI things, I frequently get an MSH on the, them as well and frequently find that it's low. So, so you, you know, the, the approach, I think, is a general functional medicine program. program. You look for all the different things that could be, and you try and fix as many of them as you can while you're trying to really fix the underlying problem. Is there any favorite functional medicine test that you add on to the the, the, mold, the shoemaker protocol? I mean, you know, I'm just, do you like doing stool exams or red blood cell minerals? I'm just picking them out of the sky. Any particular ones you like to do? Well, you know, as a gastroenterologist and thinking that the GI tract is the center of the world, <laughs> 
um, will frequently be, be looking at their intestinal tract, especially if they're having intestinal symptoms of some sort, which many of them are. And do you have, what are your favorite tests or, or what do you do? I'm just curious as a gastroenterologist. Oh, you know, what I do as a gastroenterologist is probably not too much different than most of the functional medicine practitioners. I, I basically do a, a comprehensive stool analysis of some sort and then try and fix the abnormalities that we find. Well, you've been incredibly helpful. I mean, it's, if no one else listens to this besides me, I got a lot out of it, but uh, a, a lot of people will listen to this. Um, any parting thoughts you'd like to share? No, I think that it, it, it's important for people to be aware of this uh, because I am finding that it's incredibly common that people have a problem with this. The mold and neurotoxicity from that? Or the... Yep. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Hirsch and Bean, for coming on the show today. I thank you very much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on, Kirk. And I want to thank you, the audience, for listening to this edition of the Staying Healthy Today show. We'll have it posted on my website in iTunes. We'll have links to Dr. Hirschman's site and some of the mold things. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. You have a great day. <laughs>